I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Maya Hibbett, an associate editor for The Intercept, filling in for Ryan Grimm this week. On August 4th, with monkeypox spreading globally and with over 26,000 confirmed cases worldwide, U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra announced a public health emergency. I want to make an announcement today that I will be declaring a public health emergency on monkeypox. And we urge every American to take monkeypox seriously and to take responsibility to help us tackle this virus. Coming from the country with more than a quarter of known cases, almost 7,000 by the day of the announcement. The move struck many scientists and observers as too late. Several states had gotten ahead of the federal government, and the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency almost two weeks earlier. The emergence of the coronavirus that causes COVID, and, long before that, the spread of HIV and AIDS, showed us that what we think of as hard science can only go so far in quelling these sorts of public health crises. Even the best tests, treatments, and vaccines are useless if people don't trust public health leaders enough to take advantage of them, or if they don't have the opportunity to take advantage of them as a result of interlocking factors like race, wealth, and geography. The simple truth is that our medical and pharmaceutical systems are more focused on profits than on public health, and many people are treated as low priorities, if not outright abused furthering distrust in the medical response, or lack thereof. Joseph Osmondson, a molecular microbiologist, writer, and clinical assistant professor at New York University, knows this well. It's a focus of his latest book, Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Osmondson's essays examine the social impact that viruses have on human life, offering digestible introductions to scientific concepts alongside critical readings of queer theorists and literary giants. He reflects on how networks of care and solidarity emerged in gay communities amid the AIDS epidemic and later adjusted to a less deadly present, and how biomedical racism, and a reluctance to name race and whiteness for what they are, has deprived so many people of the care that is possible now. The problem wasn't illness, Osmondson writes. The problem is our inability to provide care to all. Joe, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to chat. So the monkeypox outbreak has suddenly been seizing headlines in recent weeks and has gotten a lot more coverage in the past week or so than than it had previously. A lot of the early coverage minimized the severity of the outbreak because it emphasized that it was isolated to a specific community, um, specifically men who have sex with men. And a lot of the framing has spoken to an audience that presumes is outside that group and says, you're not at risk, or a lot of people aren't at risk because this is isolated to this, this one community. 
So I wanted to start off by touching on what's wrong with that framing, which, although it might be obvious, and how that speaks to the media's kind of gaps in in knowledge and in care. Yeah, I mean, that framing is trying to avoid alarmism. And I will say, you know, COVID was a traumatic global experience. People are freaked out (laughs) about pandemics and viruses. You know, um, it was very odd for those of us who are queer people who grew up in the 80s and 90s or even who um, were adults already in the 80s and 90s who had been doing viral risk reduction around our behaviors and sexual practices for our whole lives, right? And then all of a sudden, mask wearing was risk reduction for COVID. Every time you went out or went to a party, you had to think about what my risks are, what the pleasure is. Is this is this a choice that I, I want to take given my risk pleasure sort of um, decision making? You know, and that has fried people's brains. I mean, really. Uh, and it's been in the last week, we've seen a lot of this alarmism by some bad players in the online space, but also just by well-meaning people who are freaked out about sending their kids to school. Um, it, to be very clear, this is not a virus that has ever epidemiologically done something like had, you know, uh, a thousand kids in a school all catch it from a toilet. Like that is just not the situation. And we need to be clear that that's not the situation because we have limited resources and those resources need to go to where they're going to be <laughs> actually helpful in, in stopping spread. So that is the meaning of this sort of don't panic. The risk for most folks folks is low. At the same time, you know, uh, the WHO literally said, its its advisory panel um, to the director said, this is not a public health emergency because it's only affecting gay men in our sexual networks. You know, folks in Nigeria are pissed. This is not a public health emergency when it's only affecting Nigerian folks, right? We see these patterns of groups of people being ignored their suffering being normalized and accepted, uh, their suffering being not called an emergency, which not only dehumanizes those groups of people, in, in this case, folks in Nigeria and queer folks globally, but of course, infectious diseases show us how connected we all are, right? No infectious disease will ever stay limited to a country or a population. So investing in care for all is actually investing in care for everyone. And the one other thing that I'll say is that um, we're, we're working on an op-ed with a, a group of uh, queer and trans folks that we don't love the language men who have sex with men. We are mm. trying to shift to queer people and our sexual networks because our sexual networks increasingly include non-binary people, trans women, and really you know, the, the risk has nothing to do with identity, the risk has to do with uh, who is in our social and sexual networks. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. You mentioned also, as you were talking about this, folks in Nigeria, where monkeypox has been spreading for a long time and is firmly within what is commonly called the, the endemic region. And as I think many people know, but perhaps not everybody at this point, monkeypox has been spreading among humans in parts of Central and Western Africa for over 50 years now, and we've had vaccines and treatments that work against it. So as you mentioned that a disease never stays within one country, would you say that the current outbreak worldwide is the product of global inequality and biomedical racism? Uh, I took the words right out of my mouth. Um, (laughs) 
So, you know, just to, to do a little history, monkeypox is discovered in laboratory animals in 1958 and humans in 1970. At the time, between 1970 and 1980, the immunity of the world was high against monkeypox because vaccination against smallpox also protects against monkeypox. And the WHO with partner countries was trying to eradicate smallpox from the face of the planet using vaccination. So everywhere, including in the Congo, in Nigeria and Ghana, uh, levels of immunity for monkeypox were high. The virus is endemic there in rodents that commonly come into contact with humans. So it would pop into the human population every so often, but the outbreaks would be what we call self-limiting because largely because the immunity was high, right? So it might infect a household, maybe two, but then the virus by itself would sort of, uh, it would eradicate itself essentially, right? It would go back, uh, leave the human population. That has shifted because when the WHO decides that smallpox is eradicated, and it is, they stop vaccinating, even though vaccination could prevent monkeypox suffering and death. And we also are talking about this as though it's a, a virus without deaths, right? It is not a virus without deaths. We now are starting to see deaths outside of the endemic region. We knew that would happen. Um, this has, virus has been killing people uh, in Congo and Nigeria for many years. And there was a shift because of the waning immunity from the smallpox vaccination. Uh, it was sort of, from my mind, a matter of time. In 2017 to 2018, through now, uh, in places like Lagos, Nigeria, in urban centers. So this also was a, a tended to be an, a disease that was more common in rural areas where people would come into contact with animals. No longer. 2017, 2018, you see continued human-to-human -human spread in urban centers. And at that point, it, it's like pretending that you're not going to see flights from Lagos to London or Lagos to New York. It's just it, it's a matter of time before um, the the way humans move. Also, you know, everywhere humans move, so too will move any virus. This was an epidemic of choice. The U.S. government let 28 million doses of the Genios vaccine, the modern vaccine, the very safe one, expire in its national stockpile. It did not even consider using expired doses of an American vaccine for people in need in the endemic region. I did a panel with the head of the Nigerian CDC three weeks ago now, and I asked him specifically, what countermeasures do you have in Nigeria, vaccination and treatment? They have none, right? So again, speaking about alarmism in the American context, there are folks who are saying that we need to vaccinate like all Americans, you know, I do not want a white woman in Kansas with very low risk to get a vaccine before a person in Nigeria where this virus spreads much more commonly, right? We need to think globally to consider everyone suffering. Unfortunately, because of late capitalism, the vaccine is scarce right now that we can work on changing. It would take huge political motivation and will, um, but it is possible. And, and everyone, <laughs> everyone's suffering should be met with the world's best biomedicine, no matter what country they reside in. I mean, it's like remarkable you even have to say that. Yeah. But it's actually a quite a, a radical stance if you think about making that happen in practice. Yeah, absolutely. And just as a point of history connecting, I think you mentioned when those 28 million doses expired in 2017, there was also at the time a massive monkeypox outbreak happening in Nigeria that that very year, right? That is the same year, yeah. 
another point of history that folks might find interesting. This has never not been on the radar of global public health. The, the smallpox eradications, monkeypox and smallpox are very similar viruses, and the presentation can look quite similar. One of the last places that the WHO looked in terms of smallpox eradication, at the time, every single mo- monkeypox outbreak that happened in the endemic region, the WHO had to go there and make sure that it was monkeypox, not smallpox, right? So it was like uh, heading to hundreds of local epidemics at that time. But then once smallpox is listed as eradicated, that level of care and consideration completely dissipates. Yeah, I think, and and again, like all of this very clearly relates to biomedical racism and access worldwide. And on that topic, here in the United States, when we talk about vaccine hesitancy um, and, you know, quote, anti-vaxxers, often people assume that that hesitancy is rooted in partisanship, uh, conspiratorial thinking, and just, you know, flagrantly wrong information. And of course, in many cases, it often is. But as you outline in your book, there are a lot of past crimes of biomedical racism by the scientific establishment that have led a lot of people, particularly Black and Indigenous people, to have very reasonable fears of new medical procedures and the way they're developed. So could you speak to that history a little bit and how well-meaning scientists who who genuinely want to support public health might seek to regain trust or kind of correct those past actions? Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone, you know, when I was in when I was in my PhD program, we had one little 30-minute seminar on bioethics and we talked about Tuskegee, right? The government experiment where care was withheld from men with syphilis, they were lied to about whether or not they had syphilis. Uh, They were used as human incubators. This was a decade-long experiment. It's viewed as like a a blemish on an otherwise ethical project of biomedicine in America. And the argument that I and scholars like Harriet Washington make in her book, Medical Apartheid, is that this is not a blemish on the biomedical project in America. This is, from start to finish, emblematic of structural racism that gets baked into every American institution, including biomedicine. Uh, and so, you know, one of the many experiments that I detail is, a, is from the 90s, where a researcher at Columbia was giving fen-fen to 12-year-old boys whose brothers had interaction with the the system of incarceration in the city. Her hypothesis was that there might be some Can you define fenfen for listeners? Oh my god, fenfen it's it's phenylformine, I think. It's a it's a it's a mood altering drug um mm-hmm. that relates to systems of aggression that was also used as like a diet fad drug in the 90s if you remember, if if anyone was a was a uh, alive then um it's a pretty gnarly drug to give to 12-year-olds, mood altering. <laughs> Her hypothesis was that they were inherently aggressive because of their their older brother's interaction with the systems of mass incarceration, right? This was the 90s. This was Columbia. This was research approved by an IRB uh, happening at a major research institution. In other work, I write about a researcher, you know, who uh, (laughs) literally in in the aughts was treating lesbianism in utero. Uh, There's a a genetic mutation that relates to intersex folks. And um, a lot of the folks are with that mutation are, um, are, become lesbians. And that's awesome because queerness is great. But um, she, this woman was having parents, mothers take drugs to treat the in utero uh, person so that they would be less likely to be both intersex and lesbian. I mean, we're just talking about a history of experimentation that harms folks 
with all sorts of, you know, identity markers that are not waspy, cis, straight, white men, you know, still to this day, clinical trials have way more men than women. Typically, you know, it's, and you know, again, I am an anti-capitalist. Pharma is fucking evil. You know, I am not out here saying Pfizer is awesome. Uh, as a matter of fact, in COVID-19, I was, um, uh, you know, I was on the street in front of Pfizer protesting for global access to what was very good biomedicine. It's sort of like we have to understand that, you know, God, it, it's, it's like it's I can't remember which post-Marxist talked about this, but capitalism can develop good tools. Capitalism is evil and can also develop tools that working people that are useful for working people. And we should be allowed access to those inventions that make our lives better, all while also trying to completely deconstruct capitalism because it's an evil system. And I don't trust pharma. Fucking pharma sucks, man. But I can tell you that the data on the COVID mRNA vaccines, I cried the first time I saw it. Because the data was so clear, it was an incredible biomedical intervention. And before the evolution of variants was very effective, even at preventing infection. And I did not think that was going to be possible. You know, and then the virus had some tricks up its own sleeve. Vaccines are still an incredibly helpful, but not perfect tool. You know, it's sort of holding these two ideas in mind. Biomedicine is racist and fucked up. Capitalism means that all pharma companies are not trying to save your lives. They're trying to profit. That is their goal. Their goal is to profit. Um, If they happen to save your life, that might be a nice little offshoot of that, but primarily it's profit. At the same time, when a good biomedical tool exists, folks should take it if they have access and we should fight for everyone to have access. You know, that there's sort of those points of advocacy and activism where we actually have had wins. We've had wins on global HIV med access um, in the 2000s. You know, we lost basically on COVID-19 global vaccine access. You know, we are now fighting very hard for global monkeypox biomedicine access. It sucks that this is only on our radar now. That's a way that we, me and a bunch of other folks, have. we were not advocating for folks in Nigeria to get access to the 28 million doses of vaccine as they expired because it was not on our radar because of, because of biomedical racism. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you mentioned the HIV drugs that people have fought to get 
distributed globally. And also, you know, returning to your book, you have an essay on HIV and Truvada in which you lay out not only the the scientific functioning of both pre and post exposure um, antiretrovirals, mm-hmm. but also kind of the social transformation that made people begin to trust the drugs and understand that they that they truly worked. Can you envision something like that happening now amid the monkeypox outbreak when mm. people are so scared and there's so little access that we might have a similar outcome in the future? Oh, it's a really tough question. Um, the HIV situation is such a almost, I want to say unique in the history of biomedicine. I don't know that that's true, but those of us who came of age in the 80s and 90s are a unique generation in that we didn't lose a lot of our friends and lovers, but we also never knew sex without the fear of HIV. Did not in, Not once in my life have I ever had sex without considering HIV risk all through the act. And I think Truvada, uh, which is a, a, a a pill that you can take as an HIV negative person that is essentially 99.9 to 99.6% effective at preventing you from getting HIV. It's also the intervention that we understood through science that someone who's HIV positive but undetectable is the safest sex partner you can have in terms of HIV risk. So it's this whole, what I would say, queering of the HIV positive, HIV negative binary, right? That you have people who are HIV positive on meds who have no virus in their blood or semen. You have people who are HIV negative on meds who have no virus in their blood and semen. And that the sex between those people doesn't have to use a condom for HIV risk prevention. And that fr- that fried a lot of brains in a good way, you know, because To be real with you, I sometimes stayed in bad relationships because I could have sex without condoms with minimal risk of worry for HIV. And that sucks, man. It is not ideal to be in a relationship to feel like you have that's the way to prevent getting HIV. And so, you know, being able to to feel that there was a, a con- you know, if you're using condoms and they break, which they do sometimes that's happened to me before prep. Not fun, not fun to have a condom break. Uh, before prep. And so it really, for those of us who grew up in the specter of HIV AIDS, allowed some of our trauma brain to heal, is what I argue. At least that's what I feel. And I know many other people feel that way as well. The question is, is this on the horizon for monkeypox? We have so many uh, questions open. How effective are the vaccines at preventing infection? for this virus in the context of this epidemic. They are an incredible tool. It's so lucky that we have vaccines already for this virus. We don't yet know how well they work. And really for the answer to this specific question, I think we would have to ask Nigerians and queer Nigerians who have actually been living with the fear of, you know, I have a Nigerian friend and he was traveling in the US and the monkeypox thing was blowing up. And I was like, hey girl, what's going on with this monkeypox thing? He's like, oh, we've been dealing with that since forever. He's like, that's, this is not new to me. Um, it's new to you. And I think, you know, th- if, if good biomedicine and global access actually changes things for folks in Nigeria, I think that I would love to ask them that question in five years. And I hope that we end up in that situation. That makes complete sense. And I guess I should have noted also in, in my question that, of course, Truvada and a, a lot of 
other like like so many other drugs in the US is of course very expensive and not available for equal access for all so it's not like it's truly a totally rosy no. and without um and, and I worry I I you know there is a huge political activation right now amongst queer folks be, because we are you know everyone I know knows someone with monkeypox this is not something that is theoretical to us this is something like you know we've had it. We know people who've had it. You have to isolate for four weeks. It can be incredibly painful. So there's a huge political activation because we're in a crisis and people are being withheld from the treatment that they need, from access to testing and vaccination that they need. I really worry that this is a a largely privileged group that is politically activated and they're going to get their little shots and go on about their little lives and leave everyone else behind. And that everyone else, as always, will include folks in America. Only 25% of the people who are um, indicated for PrEP actually are on it. Um, Some of that is people who maybe just don't want to be, but certainly some of that is issues with access. That number goes down to 9% if we're considering Black folks. 9%, right? So we know who we leave behind uh, in biomedical access in this country. And when, you know, when the Fire Island white gays get their little shots and go on about their little lives, is that political activation going to go away and once again leave, you know, folks in the rural South and folks in the endemic region completely behind? That's my real worry. And, and I really, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope we can all push against that. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. And it it calls to mind also, you mention in your book that Lawrence versus Texas enshrined the the gay right to privacy, right? Mm-hmm. To like have your sex life be your business and and not the government's. But of course, as we've seen recently in the the wake of the Dobbs decision, yeah. which, you know, took away the constitutional right to abortion, that precedent is is now also under threat. Do you think that there's that the activist networks you're talking about right now are also going to engage on that front? I I know also we're kind of getting on a tangent no, no, here, but not at all. I you know um, I do see a lot of queer anger, not just among people who can get pregnant about the abortion ruling. Um, you know, I think in the face of um, fascist backslide. Uh, which we are definitely seeing, <laughs> you know, there is real solidarity and political activation. I don't yet know that we have all the right strategies, but certainly queer people and not just people who can get pregnant, we are we are on the streets for the right to abortion. And not just because we're worried about the rights of gay marriage and the rights of privacy, but because people in our community have need and solidarity means showing up when people are being harmed and people are being harmed. And you know, returning to to monkeypox strategies and prevention, you've you've also pointed out the what should be an obvious point that telling people just not to have sex uh, doesn't work <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, is also unhealthy. But there are certain temporary safer sex recommendations that might help reduce the spread until we see some better solutions from from public institutions that could mm-hmm. actually provide vaccine and treatment. So just quickly, what are some of those recommendations and how should people think realistically about risky activities, whether they be sex or other kind of high contact, high touch? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if anyone out there is on a college wrestling team, 
just be aware that this is something that could affect you, right? Any any high touch activity, sex work, massage parlors, um, certain sports, um, places where people are taking on and off a lot of clothes, including you know theaters, high school drama, um, mar- you know marching band uniforms, right? So um, not it's not to be alarmed. It's just to for this to be on people's radars. So this has bubbled up from community. Um, I've been in conversation with a lot of people who host nightlife and sex parties about w- whether to cancel right now. All the New York City sex parties are canceled voluntarily. Uh, and that is because so many people in that community were sick. And, you know, I think uh, I was talking to a friend last night about how, like, obsessed straight people are with gay sex, that they're always, you know, it's always just like, they, they're they like, a sex party, what? A bathhouse? Y'all still do that? You know, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like finger waggy, but also like, that sounds kind of fun. There's something in the stomach where they're like, ooh, ooh oh, so liberated, you know? Um, you know? The communities who go to places like that are largely voluntarily saying we just need to wait for more vaccines. Um, you know, I think if I remember the epi correctly, around 30 percent of cases, um, the person thought themselves that it was linked to a sauna or a, a, a sex party, places where people meet for sex, basically. And out of love for those spaces and for the people who attend and not wanting them to suffer and not, you know, try to have to get medication that they probably won't get, it, you know, it's probably not a bad idea to wait till you get at least one shot of vaccine, if not two. And that is coming, you know, that is coming up from the community that is not coming down from public health officials who correctly are very reticent to to um to sort of finger wag about particular behaviors. You know, what I've been saying is that gay sex is like the wind, right? Gay sex is like the earth. It is, it is like a mountain. It's like the ocean. Uh, it is, it is a fact of life. It, you will not stop it. Uh, you know, eight, decades of HIV work shows us this. You need to show up where people are and offer risk reduction and biomedical intervention. We're calling for an anal autumn instead of a slutty summer. <laughs> Um, hope, hoping that the 800,000 doses of vaccine that should come online before September actually gets people um, protected. It's <laughs> a good phrase. Um, and uh, since you mentioned those 800,000 doses of vaccine, for anyone who missed this story last week or maybe when they hear this two weeks ago, what happened with those? There are about 300,000 right. doses, I believe, in, in Denmark. What happened there? Yeah, this is um, this is reporting from the New York Times. You know, the feds fucked up. The feds fucked up, and um, they were hearing from community how bad the situation was on the ground. Uh, the epidemiology, you know, every, I think it, two three years ago, if I had said this, it, it wouldn't make sense to anyone. But um, when you have cases of a virus popping up that are not linked to one another or to travel. That is clear epidemiological evidence that you have undetected community spread of that of that infectious disease. And that was the situation in May, right? We had a very small number of cases, but none of them were linked to each other. And none of them, not not none of them, but the majority of them were not someone who had been out of the country. So we knew that the situation was much worse than we were monitoring. We started having people in our community directly affected who were trying to get tested, who knew how bad the testing situation was. And we di- directly asked uh, partners in the federal government to move as many doses as they could. They you know, counted in all of their official outreach 
the 300,000 doses that were available to be moved immediately were counted as part of the 800,000 doses that were not. They said we have 76,000 doses, I believe, uh, that can be moved. And that was the situation where it was, you know, and pride was coming up. My goodness. It was like, this was like May into June. We were like, get the fucking doses in the fucking arms before people come to New York for pride. It is, you know, a million people are coming to the city. Let's work this out. Uh, And they didn't. So uh, they were not honest with community members or the public about those 300,000 doses being able to be moved. They were not ordered until the weekend of Pride, actually. Uh, And then it took many days to get them in a plane uh, to get them over to the States. And they arrived in July. And vaccine in a freezer or on a plane is fucking useless. And many people I know personally wanted to get vaccine, did not get vaccine, and then went on to get monkeypox. And and the logic there was a was a hypothetical. It hurts me. National security. It hurts. Threat, right? It, Just, they, yeah. they they were afraid of not needing the vaccine, uh, and and they were afraid of a theoretical smallpox bioterrorism emergency, uh, and therefore could not respond to an actual monkeypox emergency. Their logic again was, oh, we don't see that many cases. But that was only because no one could get tested. And I am so sorry, you know, uh, but if this were affecting a community that wasn't just queer folks, those doses would have been moved. Like, it's just, you know, we allow certain groups of people to suffer without taking their suffering seriously. And, you know, when Secretary Becerra, uh, HHS secretary, uh, goes and tells reporters the federal government has done everything they can do. If you're having problems, it's the fault of the cities and states. I, I just want to like, my head wants to blow off because that is just overtly, objectively false. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we and, live in hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's true. Um, and then also, you know, in terms of access and and government gatekeeping, um, we do have treatments. Right. But- People are having a lot of difficulty accessing them. Yep. Um, so and still, you know, yeah. And so, what are the what are the treatments available, and why are they so hard for people to get right now? It's a great question. You know, this is sort of a, a, a story of the power of government and then the failures of government. There's a drug called Tecoviramat, which uh, in the in the states goes by Tpox with two X's at the end because it's a little spicy. Um, the drug was developed through our tax investment, the drug was fully developed and FDA approved by the federal government, by different agencies. Uh, Initial research was done by the National Institutes of Health to find a small molecule, so a drug uh, that seemed to be effective against orthopox viruses, which is the family of viruses that includes both monkeypox and smallpox. The FDA actually developed a new set of rules because, you know, it's not really ethical to do a smallpox random clinical trial uh, on a planet where smallpox is eradicated and you'd have to like give people smallpox and then test the drug on them. Can't really do that. So, um, and, and because of biomedical racism, no one was like, Hey, let's do a clinical trial in the regions that let's invest, let's spend the money in a clinical trial in the regions of the world where monkeypox does exist and then uh, ensure access of the drug in those regions. No one thought about that um, because of racism. And so the drug was tested on efficacy using animal models, including uh, an an animal model for monkeypox shown to be effective. And then safety was tested in a small clinical trial with, with humans. 
the drug was FDA approved based on that collection of data. So it's never had a randomized clinical trial in humans. Um, that is a special class of, of drugs in the States. And it is completely up to the federal government how that type of drug is actually rolled out. It is not FDA approved for monkeypox, even though some of the animal data was from monkeypox itself. And the drug is approved in the European Union for monkeypox as well. Because the FDA approved the drug based on this animal rule situation, the only person, the only entity that can buy the drug from the manufacturer is the federal government. And the only place it can go is the strategic national stockpile, which is the federal government's sort of emergency national defense uh, biomedical entity. And there's only one way to get the drug out of the strategic national stockpile. The CDC has made those decisions. And it used to be a 124-page protocol that took clinicians five-plus hours per patient to enroll. It is now the CDC is patting themselves on the back because it's now down to a 20-page document that providers still have to, to do per patient. Obviously, only certain types of providers will be able to handle this paperwork burden. We have providers in New York working 20 plus hour days to enroll as many patients as they can, but there are too many patients, too few providers. There are one to two million, million doses of this drug sitting on a shelf. We need to tell patients that the drug is different than other drugs. We don't know exactly how effective it is, although... Um, observational studies show that it may decrease the duration of symptoms. Uh, the safety data are more limited than with a typical drug, but patients, and I'm talking to sh- a, a ton of them because so many people I know have this virus, they want the pill. You know, they want the intervention. They're sitting at home, isolating two plus weeks, four plus weeks when a pill sits on a shelf. No, they, they know the information that I just told you, and they want access to the pill. Uh, and that still is is so tightly limited just by the the number and types of providers who actually can prescribe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just insane. It, it seems so painful and and uh, like physically and emotionally to to go through. And there is people are just waiting. One thing we know about this virus that's well documented in the literature is the mental health burden of having it, the isolation and the duration of isolation, the pain, um, the stigma of the lesions, the feeling of the lesions, the you know the the stigma post infection uh, has a huge mental health burden. And right now, you know, we're asking folks to isolate a month, and there is no financial, emotional or social support for those patients to help them successfully do so uh, with the smallest emotional and mental health burden possible. You know, we don't have hotel room programs like we did for COVID uh, for people who have roommates or have family members. Um, You know, I have some some folks who have kids and they're terrified because kids are high risk for severe disease, you know, and um, it's, it's, it's scary for them to figure out what they would do with their kids if, if they, if they got this, this virus. So right now, because of the lack of a, of a declaration of a public health emergency at the federal level, getting funds to have these basic needs met for patients, it, it just does not exist. Yeah. I mean, what about, what about patients who are supposed to go into a physical job and will not get paid if they don't show up? Yeah. 
and you know there was a there was an article very early on May or early June about a Canadian performer um and he talks in in great detail about not having his next rent check and not, you know mm-hmm. the financial cost of having to isolate uh, it's a known thing that that people are are struggling with and there's no response whatsoever crowdsource yeah um, well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, it was great talking to you. It was a real pleasure. In, in these trying times, it was a, a moment of, of connection. Thank you. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Maya Hibbett. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.